Good morning, Wellspring. A few weeks ago, I was having a conversation with my friend Steve. Steve and his family had, up till two years ago, been living and ministering cross-culturally in China. But in 2018, while Steve and his family were in the U.S. on home assignment, they heard the news, the crushing news, that they would not be able to return because of government actions taken to shut down their ministry for good. In a moment, they lost not just their ministry, they lost their home, they lost friends, they lost a life that they'd invested in for years. And since then, they've faced uncertainty about their future, cared for aging parents diagnosed with late-stage cancer, struggled to make ends meet, agonized over staying in the U.S. versus returning to the field in Asia, and just when they thought that they knew what the next chapter of their life would look like, along came the COVID-19 pandemic. As we talked, Steve told me about some of the opportunities that he's had to share with friends, with pastors, with missions committees, with family, about the losses and the transitions and the stresses that they've been through over the last few years. And he told me, generally, people respond in one of three ways. A lot of people, he said, look for silver linings. After they hear about all that their family's been through, the person might just say something like, well, at least you have your family. At least you're all together, safe and healthy. Still others, he said, tend to grasp for words of hope. And if they're Christians, they might turn to Bible verses like Romans 8.28, saying, well, it's like the Bible says, I'm sure that all things will work together for your good. But only rarely, Steve said to me, has he heard a third response. Empathy. Sorrow. As a liner, as the listener takes in and feels and identifies with the grief and pain of a life disrupted and all the losses that have come in the wake of that disruption. And they say, whether with words or in silence, I am just sorry. That's, that's not right. My conversation with Steve led me to reflect further on the subject of loss and of grief, of trauma and mourning. And I concluded that many of us, including myself, are uncomfortable with loss and grief because we don't know how to grieve, or maybe we're not sure if we should grieve deeply, authentically. For some of us, that might be because of a lack of modeling in our own families or in our circles of friendship. For others, it might be because we are fearful of feeling out of control emotionally. And still for others, it, it might simply be a matter of practicality. Who has time to really grieve the hurts and losses in our lives when there are children to feed, when there are, uh, there's life to do, work to finish, responsibilities to fulfill? But I believe that the Bible leads us in a different direction. I believe that the Bible tells us that we are invited and uniquely positioned as God's people to mourn and grieve our losses deeply and honestly before God.
So as we turn in our Bibles this morning to Psalm 88, I'd invite you to consider that possibility as well, because I believe that Psalm 88, along with the rest of the Bible, invites us and tells us that we're uniquely positioned as God's people to mourn our losses and even grieve the losses of others deeply and honestly before him. In Psalm 88, we find the psalmist lamenting before God. It's one of a group of psalms that we often refer to as the Psalms of Lament. When we say that, though, maybe there's a way that the religious pithy word gets in the way of comprehending the nature of the psalmist's song, of his cry and his prayer. So today I invite you to look at me, look with me at Psalm 88 and see that the psalmist's words fall into three categories. There are three aspects to this psalm. One is the psalmist's desperation. The other is the psalmist's willingness to speak out his losses before God. And the third is the psalmist's transparency with God. So first, the desperation of the psalmist. In verses 1 to 2 of Psalm 88, the psalmist writes, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. I think even with the exclamation mark at the end of verse 2, there's a way that the formality, that the cultural distance, that the familiarity of these words can get in the way of our realizing how desperate the psalmist really is. Not only in the opening verses of the psalm, but later on in verses 9 to 13, the psalmist's words express a desperate need, a desperate yearning for God to hear him and to answer him. This isn't mere religious ritual. This is an urgency. It's a desperation. He says, every day I call on you, Lord. He asks, do you work wonders for the dead? Are you going to hear me when this is all gone? If you don't answer me, if you don't save me, I'm, I'm hopeless. And he says, Lord, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. In other words, the psalmist is saying to God, I need you. I need your help. Nobody can help me. And I'm coming to you day in and day out because you alone can help me. And I need you, Lord. He's desperate. What I realized as I read through Psalm 88 is that desperation is in fact an expression of faith when we turn to God. If we are desperate and running around the street, uncertain that anybody can help us, then that's all that we are, simply desperate and maybe hopeless. But the psalmist is not hopeless. He is faithful. He's full of faith and dependence on God because his desperation is an expression of dependence on God rather than on himself. I note here that in this sense, desperation is something we're not used to, most of us at least. Desperation is intrinsically vulnerable. It's not problem-solving, solution-finding, self-confident, or impressive. It's dependent and meek and helpless. In that sense, desperation is, or it should be, bound together with genuine faith in Christ. Instead of being reluctant to feel desperate, those who trust in Christ should embrace it 
we can embrace it as it leads us to rely more on God and less on ourselves. So when we are facing loss, when we are facing suffering, when we are facing difficulty like the psalmist, desperation is the signpost that leads us to trusting and crying out more and relying more on God. The psalmist isn't only desperate. He doesn't simply say, God, help me. Because in the verses that follow, the psalmist also speaks out his losses to God. He describes to God something of what he is suffering. Look at verses 4 and below. He says, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You've put me in the depths of the pit, and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. Now, on the one hand, the psalmist's description of what he's experiencing are just unclear enough that most commentators and scholars speculate at best about exactly what the nature of the struggle the psalmist is facing really is. Is it that he's suffering from illness? Has he been abandoned by his companions? We can't be entirely sure. But as we read through the psalm, one thing that strikes me is that he doesn't only deal with vagaries, with ambiguous um, complaints against God. He says to God, um, I'm hurting, and here are some of the ways that I feel. Here are some of the ways that I'm hurting. And in so doing, he models talking out our griefs and anguish with God, actually describing his pain, describing his sense of suffering and loss. I wonder if that's something you're comfortable with doing. Because I can say that many times in my life, I haven't been. It's one thing to praise God, we're told by mentors and others, to praise God and thank him specifically for his qualities and for the gifts that he's given to us. But how often have you been encouraged, even urged, to pray out your losses before God, to speak to him in detail about your suffering, your pain, your hurt, the psalmist models talking out our griefs and anguish with God. And doing so is not immature or awkward. It's what we do, just like a toddler with his mom or his dad, with those whom we trust to care about us and care for us. And that's a remarkable thing, that the God of the universe invites me and invites you to pour out our losses to him, and that he hears and cares. I know that some of us are in the habit of facing trial and difficulty with a stiff upper lip, to respond to our losses stoically, while others are in the habit of dealing with hardship and suffering by just trying to look at the bright side, the silver lining by staying positive. But if the psalmist's example is any indication, I don't think that either stoicism or positivism are signs of emotional or spiritual maturity, of strength or health. They might in fact be signs of the opposite. 
God invites us, like the psalmist, to pour out our losses before him, to spell out our griefs and our pain, and he hears. In fact, that's one of the things that strikes me about this psalm, that the psalmist is convinced, you see, that God hears him. This isn't a man who shakes his fist toward the heavens, convinced that this spiteful deity despises him, ignores him, um, has treated him scornfully or unjustly. The very fact that the psalmist is coming before God this way, that he's coming to him desperately, that he's coming to him pouring out, speaking out his losses to God, implicitly indicates that the psalmist is still looking to God to be his helper, to be his rescuer and his deliverer. And so as the psalmist speaks to God, it's his transparency that also strikes me as I read Psalm 88. As he closes the psalm, I'll note that this psalm is unique among virtually all the psalms because it does not end in a note of hopefulness. It doesn't end on a few verses of triumph. Instead, as he wraps up the psalm, he writes, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. In fact, another translation simply translate this, translates it as, darkness is my only friend. There is no note of hope, of triumph, of light at the end of the tunnel for the psalmist. He's raw and he's honest and he's transparent with God, not when everything's about to turn, turn for the good, but in the midst of the dark valley, in the midst of the suffering, when there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I think it's because Psalm 88 ends that way that I find it such a note, such an example for me in the midst of my losses, in the midst of the griefs that I've experienced. Many of you know that our family in the last year and a half have faced um, maybe more than our share of unexpected trials. Uh, friends who moved away last year, close friends, uh, were a great loss to us. Uh, but it was only a few months later when unexpectedly, last fall, we had to leave as well our country of service. And so no longer in Asia, but displaced, we find ourselves now in the U.S. trying to figure things out, uh, make sense of what's happened to us and simply face not necessarily a, an explanation or a reason, but simply the sense of, of loss, that everything's broken, everything's been disrupted, everything's been taken away. And as I've walked that journey of, of loss and trauma and grief, Psalm 88 speaks to me in part because it doesn't say to me that there's light at the end of the tunnel. It ends in the valley of darkness. And maybe you've also been in that valley before. 
And there is no light. And there is no hope, it seems. Psalm 88 is a word for us in those valleys, that even in the valley, God is with us. Now, of course, most of us have not experienced displacement from the place we call home, uprootedness from our work and our ministry and our life, all in one fell swoop. But loss isn't just about sudden and dramatic and overwhelming disruptions. Of course, loss can include things like losing your job or getting sick or someone you love getting sick or even dying. It can also mean other kinds of loss. It can, loss can also include things like feeling excluded socially at school, losing your favorite toy or your favorite stuffed animal. In all of these kinds of situations and more, there's a question we can face, whether we're able and willing to face our losses and grieve them, and grieve them with God, knowing that he listens, or whether we will paper them over, whether we will avoid them, whether we will grieve for just a moment and then get on with life. There are even other losses that don't simply come and go in a moment, of course. There are losses that are chronic, that are ongoing. And of those of us, of course, who've experienced deep and tragic loss, uh, will know that the, the wake of those losses, the ramifications and echoes of those losses go on for much longer than just a day or a week or a month or even a year. But there are also other kinds of losses that keep going with us. And I think a great example of that is what one of these historic moments that we're experiencing right now, where all of us are experiencing a kind of ongoing, chronic loss and stress because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Whether it's because of graduations that couldn't happen, freshman years that started remotely, friends that we haven't seen in six months, vacations we weren't able to take, jobs that were lost, jobs still being looked for. There are a whole host of possible ways that the COVID-19 pandemic and its collateral impact on us is resulting in a kind of universal sense of loss and stress. And even though everybody wants to call it the new normal, I think all of us know that on another, on another level, it's the new abnormal. Whether the losses that we're dealing with are singular and momentary or ongoing, God invites us to mourn and grieve those losses before him, with him, deeply, honestly, and authentically. Of course, Psalm 88 isn't everything we can say about grief. You know, there's a lot of discussion we could have about, if time permitted, about the common stages of grief, about how we might grieve others' losses in addition to our own, about grieving over small losses versus catastrophic ones, about grief versus anger in the face of loss, about when to grieve and how to grieve when the practical concerns of life demand our attention and more. But today, as a starting point, I hope you'll see with me and consider with me that Psalm 88 gives us a place to start simply by inviting us to grieve our losses. It models for us 
that grief is not only a common experience, but one that is particularly Christian when we bring our losses to God. Now, as I was thinking over the course of my life, I could think of so many examples of times when I've faced loss, not by grieving with God, not by mourning them before him, but by avoiding them, by brushing them under the rug. So I was trying to think of examples of people in my life, of contemporary examples of good grief, of good mourning. And I thought of my friend Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie and her family were good friends of ours and neighbors uh, for several years while we were living in Asia. And she is to me an extraordinary example of one who grieves well. This is partly because Stephanie is the type of person who typically wears her heart on her sleeve, whether she's happy or sad or mad. Uh, But it's also because Stephanie is someone who is specifically unafraid of her grief. She's a mom of four kids, uh, four young kids, uh, who would even bring their losses at the expense of getting stuff done. Or, as she's told me, when she's tempted to think that, okay, that's enough, I've cried for a while, this is getting embarrassing, I should stop. Um, there have been days when Stephanie and her family have gotten hard news, unexpected bad news, medical or family or health, and It's hit them um, like a huge rock. And in the afternoon, they'll find themselves on the couches in the living room, grieving together. And not just for five minutes or ten. It's silence and crying and sharing and praying that goes on maybe for hours. Until, well, until dinner time has already come and maybe gone a little bit. And so it might be 7, 7.30, and the kids are hungry, and Stephanie hasn't stopped to make dinner. She's willing to let it go. Of course, then it's time to get takeout. And they'll do that, because that's just what you have to do. Maybe maybe some of you out there are thinking, what's the big deal? But I can say, at least in my life, the big deal is that in the face of the very same situation, I think I'd be tempted to say, Okay, this is really sad. This is really hard. This is really unexpected. But let's deal with this later when it fits our schedule, when it fits our obligations, because dinner still needs to get on the table. Kids still need to be showered. Work still needs to be done. But for my friend Stephanie, there's a recognition that in those moments, it very well might be that the most important work is not dinner or showers or anything else, but to grieve and to mourn their losses with God, with one another, before him. As I thought about ways that we might be like Stephanie, that we might be like the psalmist in Psalm 88, it struck me that there's a a number of ways that we can practice grieving our losses. But loss comes oftentimes unexpectedly. So how do you talk about putting this into practice if it's not already there? Well, for better or for worse, as I've already said, I think we're already in a season, virtually every single one of us, of loss. 
Maybe for you there are other losses, just like for me, beyond the COVID-19 pandemic and the ways that it's impacted our lives. But I think it's safe to say that every single one of us in this season is experiencing stresses, ambiguities, difficulties, pain and grief of various kinds because of all that's happening with the pandemic. Could I invite you to take a few moments to think about how you might bring your losses to God, how you might grieve them? Maybe it wouldn't be a prayer with words. Maybe it would be a picture you draw, a poem you write. Maybe it'd be something that you build out of Legos, something that you miss, something that you've lost. To express the losses and the frustrations and pains of this season before God. Maybe it's not just something individual. Maybe this is something we do in community. For those of us, whatever our social bubble might be right now, uh, with a few other people who don't necessarily live in our household, or maybe it's with our own family in our times of family worship or in family meetings, to give room to share about the things that make our heart ache the losses and the pains of this season, how we feel about them, and learning to express those losses, to speak them out before God, and to come to him with desperation, saying, God, I don't know how much more of this I can take. Help me, Lord. Help us, God. And as a practical note, maybe even this would be a season when especially moms and dads would be trading time to make white space in our schedule, not simply white space to make sure that errands are done or that uh, homeschool is being planned, but the white space in our schedules to grieve and to mourn and to put the hard work into it, to come before God and to seek him in our pain. Grieving in Christ, like so much else about life and death, feels the brokenness and the sin of this age. It feels how imperfect the world that we live in really is. But to more fully understand what Psalm 88 is inviting us to in our grief, it it also helps us to realize that this psalm isn't everything that the Bible has to say about grief and loss. You see, there are other psalms as well, of course, in the Bible. Other psalms that point that don't end simply in the dark valley. And so Psalm 42, verse 11 says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Even toward the end, in the midst of the temptation to utter despair, the psalmist can say, Hope in God, because this is not the end of the story. And you know, I think Psalms like Psalm 42 point ahead. They foreshadow a yearning that we are told about in Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, the apostle writes in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, 
in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul writes about a yearning for a creation, by creation itself, for a renewed creation, one in which the griefs and the sufferings of this age will be no more. And I think that's part of the formula that Scripture invites us to see. The recipe that God has for this world and this age is also one that points us in our longing and in our grieving toward the next. And it's in that way that grief, I think, can actually be an expression of worship, of worshipful longing for the coming kingdom. Think, for example, of Revelation 21, the vision of a new heaven and a new earth, where it says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I think it's partly for this reason that the grief is not something we're intended to worship, uh, to experience alone. Because worship is in a sense, because grief is in a sense an act of worshipful longing, we are meant to mourn with those who mourn, to grieve with one another as God's people, because we also hope together for something better. I grieve with my friend Steve, for example, over the loss of his family's life and ministry of the last decade. I, I weep with him. I mourn with him over his family's pains and losses of these last two years, over relationships disrupted and goodbyes unsaid and gospel work interrupted. Yet part of the sorrow we share is also a shared hope and a yearning for the new creation. And of course, our confidence that there is a hope in this coming, in this renewed, restored creation is founded in Jesus. He was a man of sorrows who was born our griefs and carried our sorrows, says Isaiah. We are never alone when we grieve with God, not simply because God hears, not simply because he'll make everything right, not simply because he cares, but because God himself has shared in humanity's sorrows firsthand in his human life, and because Jesus himself suffered the loss of his own life, and the Father suffered the grief of the death of his own Son in order to rescue us from our own sin and its ultimate consequences. Grieving our losses well in Christ opens the door for us to turn to the man of sorrows as one who mourns our losses with us. We risk the desperation and the feelings of helplessness and sorrow because we know that Jesus does not ignore or dismiss us in our grief, but empathizes with us and longs with us for healing. In Jesus, we find shelter in our grief as he grieves with us and as he points us to the promise that one day 
for all who have trusted in Christ, for all who have grieved in Christ. Grief will be no more. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us, invite us, shape us, and lead us to be those who grieve our losses deeply and authentically before you and with one another. Teach us to embrace that kind of desperation, that kind of honesty and expressiveness, that kind of transparency, that even as we grieve with you, we might also hope in you. In Jesus' name I pray.